Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm pleased to say that we can join Laurie Calvacina now, RBC Capital Markets Head of U.S. Equity Strategy. Laurie, great to get you on this program, as always. Trying to gauge a couple of things in this market, and one thing you can really help us with today is sentiment. How washed out is sentiment at the moment? Well, unfortunately, I don't think it's washed out enough, John. Um, we actually just released our investor survey this morning that we do every quarter, and the, we, we ran this from March 25th to 31st, so it's pretty pretty fresh, as fresh as we can get. We actually were stunned to see that those describing themselves as bullish or very bullish rose from 51% in December to 58% in March. Now, that's on a 6- to 12-month time frame, but what's really stunning about it is that it's the highest we've seen since we started our survey in the first quarter of 2018, and it's the exact opposite of what happened back in December of 2018 when we saw the bear spike and the bulls eased back. So, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of investors who are, you know, running down their shopping lists with me, talking about how this is a buying opportunity. Um, and we saw that in the survey results that I just don't think people are bearish enough. All right. So walk us through the idea of why they should be more bearish, given the fact that the U.S. government, that frankly, governments around the world are pouring money into the economy to try to sustain it. And then beyond with a potential infrastructure program, isn't that enough to get things back on track and get these valuations to look better to you? Well, you know, one thing we saw was that there is clear faith in the Fed, and I, I do think that that faith is deserved. We found that 87% think monetary policy has been good or very good, and there's also a lot of faith in the fiscal response so far. Um, but I think what concerns me a little bit is that if you look at the economic scenario that people are assuming, there's a belief that the economic damage from the crisis will be fairly contained and fairly manageable and fairly short in duration. And so I think the real risk to markets going forward is do we test some of those assumptions? Now, we've seen a number of firms around the street come out with some pretty scary 2Q GDP numbers. And thankfully, I'm not an economist, so I don't have to make that call. But we did see that about two-thirds of our survey respondents think that GDP is going to be contracting by 20% or less. That assumption is starting to be tested by the market. Um, So my concern is that some of these assumptions on the economic side uh, will be called into question. Look, Lori, at where we are. And it's great to have a six to 12 month visibility. As we talked to Abby Joseph Cohen yesterday, let me ask you the same question. What is your counsel for institution or high net worth looking out three years or dare I say five years? So, you know, in terms of what we want to do, in terms of what we want to buy, um, we've been telling people to really have a balance. So we think you should have some defense in your portfolio. We think you should have some long-term growth in your portfolio. And we do think you should have some cyclicality, but we're very picky about what we're choosing on each of those. So I would say pick your your spots carefully, be exposed to equities, but be prepared for some additional turbulence in the near term. That's really how we think about it. And one of the reasons why we're trying to really emphasize that there could be additional turbulence near term is we want people to be prepared for it. We do want people to be able to use it as a buying opportunity, but we think it's important to understand that there are still risks out there in the short term. Risks out there that are very hard to quantify or get your hands around, given the fact that a lot of this is an epidemiological issue. It's a health issue, and it depends on a lot of different factors. How do you even go into figuring out what to consider when determining whether we're hitting a bottom, aside from just pure sentiment? 
So, you know, sentiment, I think, is one of the best things we can look at. I I sort of laughed when I looked at the survey results this morning because we saw a huge number think that valuations are attractive. And, 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 you know, people are telling me they have no idea what the earnings outlook is. So how do you know if valuations are attractive or not? Um, You know, one of the things we did ask in the survey was, what does the market need to see to stabilize? Just regardless of what your view is, what does the market need to happen? And one of the things we, we saw loud and clear in the survey results is that people think the, the virus is really the key. It's taken center stage. So 78% told us that a decline in new cases in the U.S. is needed for the market to stabilize. Now, I'm not a doctor. You know, I, I sympathize with John when, when he doesn't like non-doctors talking about medical <laughs> stuff. So I'm not going to do that here because I think he's dead right on this. But I, I do think it's important to understand that a lot of the rally we had towards the end of March was a positive reaction to what was coming out of Washington, to the actions the Fed was doing. And that was all very well and good and deserved. But our survey this morning told us investors don't think we need to really see additional fiscal response to get the market to stabilize, but they sure do think that we need this virus outlook to improve. Now, the thing that also you know, concerned me a little bit is that 54% also said for the market to stabilize, we need significant progress on new drugs to cr- treat the coronavirus and yeah. or a vaccine. I'm not going to speculate when that's going to happen, but just understand that the virus and that path of that virus and all the uncertainty there, that's pivotal to markets near term. Laurie, you've helped me with many things over the last couple of weeks, but one thing in particular stands out, how to tailor the message for retail. This is an institutional audience that you've been speaking to. And I think for retail at the moment, it's a really confusing time because I get many people on my programs, including on this program with all of us, talking about the opportunities out there, time to add a little bit more risk. How do you tailor the message for retail at a really confusing time? I think that we do, you know, what we do want people to generally do is just to sit tight, uh, to be prepared, to understand that this is a bit of a roller coaster and we're going to have upswings and we're going to have downswings. Um, you know, I used an analogy at the beginning of the year when I was talking about the turbulence <clears throat> we expected in the market. And I said, imagine that I'm the airline yeah. pilot. I'm coming on. I'm telling you that we're going to hit some bad weather. Um, please don't jump off my plane in the middle of the flight. We are going to get to our destination. I still do firmly believe that. Unfortunately, the turbulence has just yeah. been a bit worse than we expected and it could get a little bit worse than it's been i was pretty impressed Lori. i had to buy some bow tie wax yesterday from amazon and you know usually it's like next day delivery that's and instead thing. it's it's four day delivery wait hold on a sec hold on a second tom you got it you got to elaborate what's bow tie wax you put it on your bow tie and it keeps the little fuzzies down so you don't see them is this a thing that was a thing yeah bow tie wax so anyways it's a four-day delivery (laughs) which i thought was pretty extraordinary Lori, amazon's got to be the mother of all buys well, look, one of the things we've talked about, and I can't talk about individual stocks, but we have you know, said investors need to really think about how consumer habits are going to change. And there will be some good changes for some companies, and there will be some bad changes from other companies. Um, but you know, my personal view is you know, when we think about sort of the, the tech space um, and sort of this Internet space, we, we think that there are sort of you know, heroes uh, that, that are emerging in, in, the, in the investment world. Um, you know, and sort of thinking about the tech companies, the banks, mm-hmm. the healthcare companies. These are the ones that are really, you know, sort of coming to the rescue to help this economy muddle through. And when I think back to past crises, the tech bubble, the financial crisis, sort of how these companies step up, if they're, right. they're viewed as being part of the solution or part of the problem, does have longer-term well, investment implications. Nice brief. Lori Cavalcina, thank you so much. RBC Capital uh, Markets. 
And right now, folks, we bring in a gentleman who's been very supportive of all our efforts. Jason Furman is a unique economist. And yes, there's an academic track, but far more at a young age, he had the courtesy to really tackle policy and almost applied policy within the American political economy. Professor Furman at Harvard and the former chairman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Jason, at this time and moment, and this is something we've gone back and forth with the economist John Farrell on, at this time and moment, Jason, do you wish that America and Washington was more fiscally like Europe? I think the United States has a big advantage over Europe. In what way? In what way? It borrows at the level of the United States, and Europe right now is borrowing at the level of national economies, but then has a central bank um, at the level of the Eurozone. They need you know, the type of fiscal federalism um, in Europe that we have in the United States. France is borrowing at pretty low rates, Jason. Just elaborate on that a little bit more. I'm a bit confused by that comment. They're borrowing at very low rates across Europe. Are you talking about burden yeah. sharing across the Eurozone? Yeah. No. I mean, you see, yes, you see low rates in Europe because I think implicit in that is the expectation that at the end of this, the ECB will be there to backstop the national borrowing, and that um, and that there'll be some form of fiscal federalism. I think absent that expectation, um, Europe wouldn't be borrowing at the rates it's borrowing at now. Let's talk about the response so far, Jason. You were very early in asking for a big, in fact, pushing for a big fiscal package in the United States. It has come around, and I believe that you've had some part in influencing the decision to move quickly on all of that, and I congratulate for you for the effort that you've done over the last couple of months on that front. Jason, there are many people that think we will need to do more, and I'm trying to understand the easiest way of doing more. Can you top up existing packages that are already available through the bill that was produced last week, or do you need a separate bill? What's the best way a policymaker can go about doing that? Certainly the most important thing in the United States is to extend and expand what's already happened. You know, the unemployment insurance you know, ends at the end of June, There's going to be very high unemployment the rest of this year. There's going to be very high unemployment next year. The checks are one time. You know, incomes are going to be hit next year, too. And we're going to need, you know, a more traditional stimulus for recovery. So that's the easiest. Then identifying some of the deficiencies of what's happened so far. The biggest and most obvious one is states and localities. They're cutting their budgets right now. That's undoing some of the benefit of what's happening at the federal level. They can't borrow for themselves. They're not allowed to, um, so they need much more money. Um, And then finally, we just need to keep open the channels for anything that could help health care and fund the health response. That's probably the most important. Jason, everyone has their hands out right now, and everybody needs money, and everybody is looking for the government to step in and plug that hole. Some people, actually no one right now is particularly worried about the deficit, but some people have brought it up sort of in passing. We're looking right now at a trillion dollar deficit. It's expected to rise to three trillion dollars, especially as President Trump and even Democrats talk about sort of rolling back some of the tax uh, provisions like the salt tax, et cetera, that sort of created a little bit of cost savings in the, in the previous rounds. How big can the U.S. deficit sustainably get in your view? And you saw years of 20% of GDP deficits in fighting World War II. Um, this is like an invasion, 
And if that's needed, I wouldn't shrink from it. I mean, the point is the borrowing needs to happen somewhere. You know, households, states, localities, small businesses, large businesses, somebody needs to be borrowing. And mm-hmm. the least bad position for that borrowing right now are national governments. Jason, very quickly here, this is so important. The inflationistas got it wrong coming out of 2009. Are the inflation worriers going to get it wrong again? In 2009, it was completely obvious that in a highly depressed economy, you weren't going to get inflation. Here, I'm less sure. You have a huge supply shock. You have a huge demand shock. Um, we are maintaining a lot of incomes, not all incomes, but we're <clears> maintaining <throat> a lot. So I don't know. All I can say is if we get inflation, I think that would be good. That would be a good sign that we have adequate demand. It would help lower real interest rates, lower real wages. That would help um, the economy's recovery. So I, I, don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't think we should be afraid of getting inflation. Jason Furman, thank you so much. The uh, former chairman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Let's do this. Let's bring in Michael Gape in a Barclays right now, who's more than accomplished here on the rates of change. Michael, do these stunning numbers, as Lisa frames it beautifully, do these numbers make you pull forward the agony? Do you pull the May jobs report, you know, showing April statistics? Do you pull that forward in your analysis? Uh, we do. I mean, I think the weekly jobless claims data is probably the most important piece of data that we get now. It's, it's only one week lag. It's, it's fairly contemporaneous about what's happening in the economy. When you look at the, the, the number last week and, and this week and take those together, you know, that, that's roughly a, uh, let's call it a six percentage point rise in the, in the April uh, unemployment rate already. And we have a few weeks more weeks to go uh, for the April employment report. So it's, it's not, I mean, I think it is likely that the unemployment rate will be rising above where we saw it mm-hmm. in 08, 09, and, and, and may come as soon as that April employment report, if not certainly into the May report. But uh, And if you kind of, you know, there's a historical relationship between activity and the unemployment rate. So you can kind of reverse engineer what might be happening to the economy from these jobless claims data, and, and it, it paints a, just an awful picture, and it's just reflective of the cliff effects on economic activity from all of these statewide shutdowns that we're seeing. So it's just a, it's a sudden stop in the labor market and a, and a sudden stop for many parts of the U.S. economy. Michael, I'm really struck by how devastating these numbers are because as John and Tom keep talking about all of the human stories behind it, is there any tiny little bit of silver lining in that the people who file for unemployment benefits are actually getting unemployment benefits and at least will be able to pay the rent and buy groceries, given the fact that the U.S. has expanded those benefits. Yes, I mean, I think that's probably, uh, you know, secondary consideration for uh, for uh, the workers, but certainly it's, it's a reflection of, it certainly illustrates why we need to get fiscal resources <laughs> to households and business immediately and, and make it targeted for, for where it's needed. So, yes, the fiscal plan, which, which upped unemployment benefits, is certainly the right move. And the idea is we, we need to get resources to these households. The hope is that this is a temporary surge uh, in unemployment. And, and if we're successful at 
yeah. at getting the coronavirus under control as we move into June and July. Maybe a lot of this uh, unemployment can come back. I just I just worry that you know I, I'm, my main concern here is is for a small business, and I'm talking about firms with say 49 employees or, or less. There's, exactly. There's yeah. 33 million people employed in these businesses, like wow. about 27 million of them would be services related. So uh, my right. worry is we don't get enough resources to, to those types of businesses. John Farrell, some context here, which I think is so important. We've lost a Florida of employment. Florida's statistic is 10 million employed. So in two weeks of claims is a generalization. We've lost a Florida is a nation. The numbers are absolutely stunning. And, Michael, where we really need your help is how to navigate some of the data we'll get in the coming days. Tomorrow we'll get payrolls. In around about 24 hours' time, we'll be having a conversation with an economist like yourself trying to work out how to read a labour market report that for many people is incredibly dated. What do we do with tomorrow's non-farm payrolls report? Honestly, I think we, we, we ignore it because we, the claims data are, are telling you what April's going to look like. And so the, the, we're likely to see a, a modest, <laughs> some deterioration or a modest deterioration in the labor market from the March employment report. But these two initial jobless claims reports from last week to this week are telling us April is going to be monumentally worse. So honestly, I think March is already old news. And these are the two most important pieces of information we've had. Michael, I, I got to say the emotion in this number is dramatic. Is there a sense that these people will be able to get their jobs back once the economy starts to get up and running? In other words, how sticky is this really high unemployment rate going to be? I, I think the way that we're thinking about it um, is that some of this will will likely come back, but I, I think we're you know, we're, maybe half of it comes back, and I'm worried that there's a longer tail. So say by, by the end of the year, we're still likely to have a, an elevated unemployment rate. Uh, so it, we can reopen the economy back up, but it may be that we're slow to unsocial distance, if you will. And I also think there'll be lagged effects from other sectors. Like certainly there's, there'll be spillover to the energy sector for a long time because of where oil is trading. Uh, and I think there will be negative wealth effects on, on consumption. And this is largely services activity that, that we're taking away, and it's not so easy uh, to make that up. So my, certainly my hope is a lot of this unemployment will come back uh, relatively quickly as we move into the third quarter. I have concerns that there will be a, larger, a large portion of it that, that will linger for quite some time into next year. Equity futures on the screen right now, down by 18 points on the S&P 500. We are rather up by 16 points on the S&P 500, up by six-tenths of 1%, but are raising some of the big gains we had a little bit earlier on in the session. There will be people asking right now, Michael, whether the fiscal aid package in Washington is big enough, even at $2 trillion. Is it big enough? We don't think so. We, we think that there will be uh, a phase four. Uh, certainly the House wants to direct more resources to state and local governments, and there's conversations around whether we could do more on infrastructure. So we certainly think phase three was, was a good down payment, and the needle in terms of willingness to support the economy flipped very quickly in about seven days in Washington. So it's a, it's a large package at 10% or so of GDP, but I, I do think more will ultimately be needed, and, and I do think yeah, this but... type of number... I think helps to solidify that. 
Michael, you've got a great international resume as well. Our David Weston's going to speak with Vice President Pence here in three hours. Okay, great. Uh, Florida just fell off the map in terms of labor economy. And as John's nation has figured out, you have to put the check in, as you brilliantly said, the small business hands, the service sector that's getting crushed. When you, it, it, Why can't we do that? Why can't politicians just say... This is a natural disaster one-off, effective immediately. We're cutting blah, 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 blah. Why are we unable to I, do that? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I do wish that it were geared a little more like the support provided in Europe and the U.K., where, where the, the arrangement is you keep people on payrolls and we'll foot you know, 75 or 80 percent of, of the wage bill for you know, call it for three months, and then we'll revisit if we need to do another three months and, and go from there. So I, I do wish it were, it were directed a little more in, in that in that way. We, I don't know why we don't do it. It's just not it's just not what we do, uh, and and it's I think it's potentially a problem because I worry, as I said before, about gaps that we don't get the resources down the the spectrum of from large firms down to small firms, and I and I worry about potential cracks and, and gaps, and, and we don't get resources to where they're needed most. But yes, if, if I had a, a magic wand, I would have designed the fiscal stimulus a little more into that direction as direct income support through business to, to households, keep people on payrolls, keep them getting benefits, and, and just have the government support that bill. Michael Gapen of Barclays, really appreciate your time this morning. A difficult time for yeah. everyone worldwide at the moment. Yesterday, we spoke to the likes of Abby Joseph Cohen, Olivia Blanchard. We spoke earlier this morning to Jeffrey Sachs and Jason Furman. None of this matters because all they want to do is hear from Jonathan Miller, Miller Samuel, right now in real estate in this New York, real estate in all the major cities of this nation. Uh, Jonathan, I can't imagine what you have gleaned in your data, in your study, in your embedded knowledge of our real estate. How does this rent conundrum play out? Millions can't pay. Landlords aren't going to get the rent. They have financing due. How does it play out? Well, I think the, the what is a reversal from the financial crisis, I think the banks are going to be the one that are going to do the heavy lifting on uh, supporting landlords um, as they see a, a huge drop in income um, over the next couple of months. I, I don't think there's any way around it. If Jonathan, there's, oh, excuse me, Lisa. I'm sorry. Lisa, go ahead. Well, Jonathan, heading into this, property valuations were already declining in New York City. And Jonathan, I'm wondering how much you see property valuations declining further from here, given what we're seeing in terms of just a complete shutdown of the city that never sleeps. Right. It's, uh, it's interesting because the, uh, the, bro- the real estate brokerage business, specifically in New York City, or was considered an, a non-essential business until yesterday, and Cuomo reversed it. And so now we, we could have real estate agents, uh, you know, some running around selling property, which is counterproductive on, uh, on the concept of shelter in place. Um, if you look at the last Two big events in in this market. Uh, one was 9/11, and one was the Lehman moment, which d- 
didn't, um, you know, removing the, the tragedy component aside and just looking at housing, we're looking at, you know, we could be looking at a short-term price drop anywhere from 25 to 30 percent because you simply don't have well, what we saw before and then a quick rebound. That's right where I wanted to go uh, in terms of what a bear market is in real estate because the elasticities are totally different, the mortgage and the leverage. And, and that are, is, is the history of this, John Miller, that we see a 15% decline in real estate in the major cities and across this nation? So I think there's the, a high probability of, of significant uh, price drops in the short term. The variable here is how long you know, in each region does this uh, virus play out, therefore how much damage does it do to the economy, therefore how much damage does it do to the housing market. And I think it's pretty clear, uh, you know, there was a lot of optimism coming into the year in harder hit areas like New York that things were starting to, that we were bottoming and we were looking better. But really all that's out the door. You can't look backwards behind this event. It's not relevant. what we're seeing now is we're seeing uh, inventory fall sharply, which sounds good, but really what it is is that consumers are not putting their properties on the market. Um, I think landlords in rentals are going to do everything they can to uh, to accelerate the uh, renewals um, because it's difficult for people to run around and look at property. I think they're going to try to retain the tenants that they have. And I think there's going to be some, you know, price compression. Jonathan, taking a step back, I want to talk about the behavior of Americans and whether we are going to see a shift out of some of the bigger cities where you see more concentrated populations to, uh, you know, the suburbs and beyond in response to the threat of a pandemic. We've seen that on the peripheries. Is that going to accelerate? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I, I, I do think that. In the short term, we'll have, and we already saw in the last, uh, over the last month, that people trying to do short-term rentals in the suburban markets, but they, they physically couldn't move their, their stuff out of the city because many buildings have, don't allow movers uh, to come in and out. Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't see a, a, a massive restructuring, but I do see a, a short-term advantage to the, to the suburbs. I think I think we do have short memories, um, as as we've seen yeah. in the past. What do you see in Florida right now, John Miller? What do you what do you see down there? The dynamics are different down there than some of these other cities. Yeah, we aren't. Um, you know, they're having the outbreak. The state just had the the lockdown. Uh, yeah. I think we're New York is probably two two <clears throat> or three weeks ahead of Florida in terms of um, stalling or pausing, simply because of the pragmatic element of people not being able to, to view property. I, I think the idea of, of someone buying virtually right now is still a concept that is going to accelerate in popularity, but it's really on right. the margin. I don't think it's going to replace people physically looking at property. Jonathan Miller, thank you so much for Miller Samuel this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.